Charles Millard is a former director of the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, a government body that helps save the retirement assets of single and multi-employer pension plans. He started out as a Wall Street lawyer and eventually became an investment banker. He was even elected to the New York City Council and later became head of economic development under Mayor Rudolph Giuliani where he was responsible for much of the redevelopment of 42nd Street and Times Square. He's seen it all, and today, he's our guest on the Chief Investment Officer podcast. Charles is going to discuss his time at the PBGC, spent during the George W. Bush regime, and what he's seeing in the political and retirement plan landscape. The principal focus for me when I was at the PBGC was to lower the deficit of the single employer plan system and to change the investment policy to give the PBGC a chance to get out of its deficit. The investment policy was very focused heavily on fixed income, even though the PBGC had no real way to generate any income to get out of its deficit. So we made a sensible shift to give us a better chance to eliminate the deficit over time. That was one very, very big focus. The other focus was the deficit in terms of litigation and recoveries and some positions that we took in litigation to force certain plan sponsors that we were litigating with in bankruptcy court to put up more money to solve some of PBGC's problems because we had taken some aggressive positions against them. We had imposed some liens, for example, on Delphi that they had to have us lift in order to raise private capital because the private investors said, we're not going to put money in if you have those liens from the government. So whether we could have enforced the liens or not, we'll never know, but it caused Delphi to come back to the table and put more money in the PBGC pot, and that really helped the deficit go down. But what are the current issues the organization is struggling with? Well, the PBGC has the single employer system and the multi-employer system. The single employer system was the big problem when I was there. The multi-employer system is the big problem now. Multi-employer systems are organizations of many employers and employees, usually from a similar industry, such as trucking. And the PBGC's guarantee is applied in a different way. They're spoken of as loans. When the PBGC subsidizes a uh, multi-employer plan, they make a loan. Only the loans never get paid back because the multi-employer plans are in such deep trouble. Congress is trying to solve that problem. Finding a political solution to that is extremely difficult, and it's ongoing even as we speak. The Pension Protection Act is a public legislation that was enacted in 2006 to protect retirement accounts and hold companies with underfunded pensions responsible. This was done as an effort to reform the pension system. To aid floundering pension systems, a series of legislations must be put in place, but it can take a very long time for lawmakers to come up with a plan. Charles is going to tell us why. Well, first let's talk about why it's so difficult. Congress passes pension-related legislation probably about once every 10 years. And first, that's because nobody is really in a position where they say, my ox is gored. People don't know when they're 50 how bad things might be usually when they're 65. People don't know which companies might go bankrupt and whether the PBGC needs a certain kind of protection. And nobody's screaming to Congress that this is really important, except for maybe the plan sponsors. And even the plan sponsors may have differing opinions about what should be done. So it's hard to get everybody's attention. And then once you get into it, 
it's extremely complicated how to legislate around pension plans. And it can get pretty boring and pretty eyes glazing over pretty fast. So it's very difficult to get Congress's attention. It's difficult to negotiate the substance of it. And it's difficult to find political solutions to very, very complicated problems. After finishing his run in 2009, Millard again had a spectator's view of what's going on with the PBGC and his pensions. Setbacks such as the global financial crisis have created problems for the PBGC, including a multitude of badly funded pensions needing reserves and paying large premiums to keep the corporation funded as well. To help, Congress is trying to pass several reforms, but they too are having trouble. There's a lot of red tape in Washington, but we might have a chance at saving some of these funds in 2019, as there are some proposals that have a shot at becoming law. Yes, I do think 2019 could well be the year that things happen. I was at a hearing of the Ways and Means Committee on April 2nd, and it was a love fest of left and right, Democrat and Republican, about certain provisions of a bill promoted by Richard Neal, who's the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, and supported by Kevin Brady, who's the ranking member. You wouldn't have thought you were in Washington, D.C. 2019 by the amount of agreement and happy backslapping that was going on there. And that's very encouraging. Similarly, in the Senate, the Finance Committee Chairman, Charles Grassley, and his ranking member, Ron Wyden, have proposed similar legislation to what's uh, passed in the Ways and Means Committee. We're a long way from anything being passed. It's still Washington, so you never know. But the chances are better now than they've been in quite some time. But just what are some of these potential legislations? Well, there's a few. I would say right now, defined contribution plans generally do not have alternative assets in them. Technically, it's permitted, but it's very complicated. And plan sponsors are understandably very concerned about getting sued if they do it wrong, because there's a lot of class action suits against plan sponsors if they've chosen the wrong investment or the wrong asset allocation. So having what's called a safe harbor that says that, yes, if you follow the following process, you will have properly implemented an investment strategy that includes alternatives for the participants in your 401k plans would be very important legislation for Congress to pass. Additionally, people can buy an annuity when they get to 65, but for many people it would be sensible to buy annuities in their 401k plan even when they're 50, like a deferred annuity that would only begin when you're 65 or even when you're 75 or 80. Technically, again, you can probably do this if you're a plan sponsor, but they're concerned about lawsuits and they need a safe harbor to make it clear the proper way to do this so that if they follow the proper way to do it, they can offer the annuities to people to buy them as an investment in the plan, not just when they retire. Thirdly, it would be very important for people to have information about what is my lifetime income going to look like if I retire in 10 years at the current asset allocation in my current plan. Again, if Congress passes a safe harbor that shows how this can be properly done, more people will do it. But nobody wants to show information and then get told they didn't calculate the information correctly. So plan sponsors are very anxious about litigation, and those are three very important pieces of legislation. Another one that gets proposed a lot, but I have to say I don't think it has much chance of passing, is to change the way Congress counts PBGC premiums. Right now, the PBGC premiums are counted as though they are revenue to the federal government, even though they don't go to the federal government. So when Congress is passing legislation and is required to find a vehicle 
to pay for that legislation but doesn't want to raise taxes, it'll raise PBGC premiums, and that's on risky plans or healthy plans alike. It raises those premiums to essentially pay for a government bill that has nothing to do with retirement, and that money doesn't actually go to the government in the first place. So plan sponsors are understandably exercised about this topic. On the other hand, I think Congress has a tendency to use it for Washington math. I don't know that that's going to change this year. One idea being debated to address the situation is a collective defined contribution plan, also known as a target benefit plan or a defined ambition plan. These already exist in the Netherlands, and Parliament is already working on passing legislation to bring them to the UK. Charles is going to explain what this retirement vehicle is and how it works. The simplest way to think about them is it's just like a defined benefit plan, except there is no sponsor guarantee. To explain in more detail, in a defined contribution plan, you're on your own. You have to guess how long you're going to live. If you're smart, you'll invest as though you're going to be 100 because you know that you're not certain when you will die. Maybe you're an English teacher, but you have to figure out how to invest your own money over that potentially 30 or even 40 year period from when you retire till when you die. In a defined benefit plan and in a collective defined contribution plan, the people who die early subsidize the people who die late. So everyone can focus on the actuarial likely outcome instead of the riskiest possible outcome for the individual. The risk that you outlive your savings is a huge risk in retirement that is tremendously mitigated in a collective defined contribution plan. Additionally, in a collective defined contribution plan, the chief investment officer is protecting the outcome for thousands of people. So when you turn 65, the CIO doesn't go to all bonds or to an annuity just for you. The CIO stays at an investment policy that's meant to uh, generate some returns over the long term. And that's healthy for you because you might live 30 or 40 years. So the negative is it's not guaranteed. And compared to a defined benefit plan, a collective defined contribution falls well short because there's no guaranteed outcome the way there is in a defined benefit plan. But the proper comparison for collective defined contribution plan is not to a defined benefit plan. It is to a defined contribution plan or a 401k. And there ain't no guarantee in a 401k either, except in the 401k, you're completely on your own and you haven't pooled your investment management. You haven't pooled your longevity risk. You haven't pooled your market risk, who retires when the market's up or when the market's down. And you haven't pooled for the long term once you retire. So the strengths of collective defined contribution are tremendous. There is some bit of movement in the direction of thinking about collective defined contribution. And I noticed at the Ways and Means Committee hearing where the Ways and Means Committee passed some pension-related legislation this year, there was some talk of other ambitious legislation that might be on the table for this year. So we'll wait and see whether they take this one on. The PPA did a lot of good, but it also created a few problems. Our guest is now going to get into the pros and cons of this. The Pension Protection Act was very effective in one way and problematic in another way. Very effective because it allowed auto-enrollment in 401ks. So people didn't have to choose to be in a 401k. They would have to choose to be out of a 401k. And similarly, it allowed auto-enrollment in target date funds. So that was a default. So people were automatically in a target date fund, which adjusts its asset allocation over the years that you're invested in it. So those two kinds of defaults were terrific. Now people are usually 
automatically enrolled in a 401k and automatically enrolled in a target date fund unless they opt to choose otherwise. So that was very good. On the negative side, the Pension Protection Act was passed in the wake of the Bethlehem Steel bankruptcy, and that imposed huge additional deficits on the PBGC. So in order to protect the PBGC, the bill imposed much higher and much more intense funding obligations on plan sponsors. Well, plan sponsors, when interest rates went down, felt tremendous volatility in those funding obligations and felt that carrying the pension plan and its liabilities and the volatility of those liabilities was just too painful. And it had the negative incentive of giving people an incentive to actually freeze and shut down their pension plans. And you have far fewer defined benefit pension plans in the United States today than you did when the Pension Protection Act was passed. That's one of the reasons why. And I think it ended up causing a significant problem in the continuation of defined benefit plans in the U.S. The Federal Reserve has changed its tune in 2019, taking a patient approach to the markets with no plans on raising interest rates. The former PBGC director weighs in on the U.S.'s current economic climate and some of its biggest challenges. The Fed's proper focus is employment and inflation. And right now, unemployment is very, very low and inflation is very, very low. The reason to raise rates in particular is if you sense inflation coming. And if you look at the last 5 and 10 and 20 years, most measurements would say that inflation has undershot expectations and been much lower than the Fed has generally been accustomed to. Now, I'm not an expert in predicting inflation. I would say that after QE2 and all the extraordinary monetary policy, the risk of inflation going forward is higher than it might otherwise appear. But I think at the moment, it's pretty clear that inflation is lower than has been expected and has been lower for quite some time and is low enough right now that there's not a need to to increase rates. I do think you have to keep an eye on the what if, right? If you see inflation begin to tick up with some speed, I think the Fed will try to act as quickly as possible. One of the growing concerns of investors is government debt. Some think it could be what sets off the next downturn. So government debt is an overhang, and it's a terrible overhang if you do not have economic growth. Economic growth can solve a lot of problems. If you get a raise, it makes it a lot easier to pay your mortgage. Well, economic growth can do a lot to help governments grow out of their deficits. But the threats to economic growth, I think, come principally from government and other policy actions and potential government and policy errors. So tremendous issues around protectionism and trade policy are a potential threat. I think a lot of the movement, I don't like to call it socialism, but the increased belief that the government can solve all problems, whether that's the so-called Green New Deal or Medicare for All. I think those are the kinds of problems that might not create an explosion, but that will create a drag and a drag and a drag that prevent growth. And you can see that in the Eurozone, where you have much more active government intervention in the markets and in the economy, and many, many more regulations and rules around labor and everything else. And you see substantially lower growth. You don't see an explosion. There wasn't a revolution. No one can say, aha, there's the culprit. But the more we risk becoming more like the Eurozone, I think the more we risk having a drag on economic growth. And in the very long term, I would say I'm very concerned about China in its restriction of freedom. China's surveillance issues, China's concentration camps of a Muslim minority, China's government control is very frightening. And I don't know when or how that will play out, but I think every economist and every investor should have an eye on that.
Brazil's new president, Jair Bolsonaro, has been trying to pass a pension reform to the country's social security system. Brazilians can currently retire quite young, at about age 55. That's great, but unfortunately, hard times have led to severe disparity in the country. The president wants an overhaul, but he's having some trouble. Millard has a few things to say about what's going on in the cash-strapped nation. The good news is most of Brazil seems to understand that they have a pension crisis. Developed economies generally spend about 8% on retirement. Brazil is spending 50% more than that, and it's getting worse. People can retire as young as 50. They can retire sometimes with only putting about 20 years into the pension system, and especially government employees have tremendously generous pensions that most people have begun to realize are just not sustainable or fair or appropriate. For example, there's about a million public servants whose pensions are about six times greater than 30 million private sector workers. That's just not fair, and people have come to realize that that's not how things should be. The problem is that Bolsonaro has had a very rough first 100 days or so. This is very difficult legislation to pass in any country. And when the government is the one whose pensions might get cut, it's pretty tough to uh, convince the elites that this is a, a good outcome. I believe they will pass something because there is such a consensus. Whether Bolsonaro gets a full loaf or half a loaf or three quarters of a loaf, I think is yet to be seen. There's an awful lot of upheaval in that country, so it would be impossible to really predict the politics. In today's times, The average American doesn't have $1,000 in their bank account, let alone emergency money. If you want to retire, saving on your own is unfortunately key. Millard explains where we as a nation went wrong with our savings, how to get better, and if there's anything the government can do to intervene. It's an interesting question because traditionally Americans have saved. Until the early 80s, most Americans saved around 10% of their income. But I think something happened as baby boomers came of age. The economy in the 1980s and the 1990s was very healthy. In addition, home ownership was encouraged by government policy. And the home market grew tremendously, which allowed people to feel that their nest egg was growing, even if they weren't saving because they could access that through home equity loans or just feel that their nest egg was bigger because they knew the equity that they had in their home. In terms of government policy, I guess I would say that auto-enrollment is good. I don't think that we want to say you must save this amount, but I think everything we can do to nudge people to already have a default that is proper savings and proper retirement savings and have them have to choose to go out of it, I think is good government policy and will help solve some of this problem in the long run. Apart from being on various boards and a member of several organizations, Charles mostly keeps busy writing these days. He recently wrote an op-ed with Michael Mendelson, partner at AQR, for CIO's sister publication, Plan Sponsor, about the importance of allowing annuities as an investment option in 401k plans. He also advises CIOs on what they need and what's helpful to them. But what Charles Millard really gets out of life are three very simple things. Faith family, and a little bit of fun here and there. Well, first of all, I've been very fortunate in my career to have the opportunity to work on policy issues relating to pensions, relating to neighborhoods, relating to economic development, 
that are focused on how to make the world a better place. I'm not sure how much I've always succeeded, but to know that some of my focus in my career has been on improving things for people who need the help has always been a tremendously fulfilling thing for me. More personally, my number one blessing is having married my wife. I've been very fortunate to be married to her, and my next blessing comes from her, which is we're the parents of nine children, and that's been a tremendously fulfilling and exciting and sometimes chaotic blessing in my life for sure. I teach Sunday school and find that very rewarding, and I love golf, which I don't always find as rewarding as I'd like to, but nonetheless, I enjoy it, and I'm very fortunate to be able to carry on as I do in life today, continuing to focus on policy issues and continuing to be tremendously excited and fulfilled in the role I play as husband and father. Thanks for listening to the Chief Investment Officer Podcast. We'd like to thank Charles Millard for taking the time to stop by and give us his thoughts on the pension world and what's going on in our economy, along with some insights as to what's happening in others. I'm Chris Butera. You stay classy now.